Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a leaked draft of a U.S. Supreme Court decision that could overturn the right to abortion in the U.S. is putting the spotlight on the issue and asking the obvious question, what's this mean for Canada? The European Union is proposing to impose new sanctions on Russia targeting their oil. Is this enough to support Ukraine? And the progressive conservatives are pulling away from the pack in the uh, Ontario election, which is underway now. According to an Ipsos poll, anyway, Sean Simpson's the VP for Ipsos Public Affairs. He'll join us to talk about that. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's start south of the 49th parallel right now with a uh, surprise announcement uh, that came to us over the weekend, of course. A leaked draft of a U.S. Supreme Court decision that could overturn the right to abortion in the United States uh, is putting a spotlight on the issue. Rob Westgate has some details for us. Canadian leaders are among the millions reacting to the draft opinion by the U.S. top court, suggesting it could overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which legalized abortion in that country. While Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reacted by saying every woman in Canada has a right to a safe and legal abortion, Earlier in the day Tuesday, Conservative MPs and Senators were warned by the Office of the Interim Leader, Candace Bergen, to avoid making any comments on the draft opinion. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. Yeah, something about that and the political aspect of this on this side of the border, and certainly on the other side as well. Let's uh, let's try to dig into this and try to find out exactly what is happening and what could happen even in this country as a result of the decision. And to do so, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Andrew Frugelli, who is a lecturer with the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Andrew, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Uh, thanks for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Good to be back on. It's good to have you back on, because I tell you, there's so much uh, you know, speculation swirling around because of this, and, and as uh, we just found from Rob Westgate's report there, there's some concern on this side of the border, too, that what could happen. Let's cut through some of the rhetoric here and get right down to it. This is a what they call a leaked draft, okay? It was a report that was leaked, but it's a draft report, uh, not a final Supreme Court decision. Uh, so is, is this just, are these, are these numbers that they've been banned around? Are these just somebody's opinion? Or is this really a, 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 an inkling of the court's decision, which is supposed to come up, I guess, uh, sometime in June? I think it's a pretty fair inkling of what the decision is. Generally speaking, if you're getting to the point uh, at those courts where decisions are actually being written, that's happening after the judges have had quite a bit of consultation with each other, mm-hmm. decided... Uh, amongst the the like-minded judges, if there's a split in the court, who's going to write the decision? Um, And the fact that you have in that leaked decision the names of the specific justices who are willing to sign on tells me that that's where their mind is clearly at, uh, and and that's why the decision was drafted. I, I think we're far beyond the sort of the discussion part of this from that court. Um, and uh, I think this is actually probably close to what they're thinking right now. Now, can things change? Of course they can. There, there are stories and rumors that have, are heard in legal circles about Supreme Court judges changing their mind at the last minute. But as an indicator of where they're leaning, it's, it's a very good one. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm not going to try to drag you too deeply into the politics of this. Uh, your legal expertise is, is uh, where we want to tap into here. But uh, you, you can't talk about this decision without at least getting into politics. And as many of the commentators have said, this might be shocking, but it's not unexpected. I mean, we've known that the Supreme Court was going to be tilting to the, shall we say, more conservative side uh, with the appointments that Donald Trump made uh, during his tenure as president. 
Uh, and this, we all knew that this case was coming to the court. The, the, I think it was the state of Mississippi actually asked them to uh, to assess this right now too. So this is uh, this is something that I guess is, I don't want to say it was necessarily inevitable, but it's something that they were asked to rule on. Now I want to get some clarification, if I could, on this, Andrew, about exactly what this decision was all about. And as I understand it, and and, and again, jump in here. With you. They're not saying abortion is is against the law. Uh, I I got the sense that, that what they're saying here is that this is not a federal uh, decision. This is not within the purview of uh, of the federal government or the Supreme Court. This is a state issue. Is, is that basically what they're saying here? Yes, and I think where people are surprised though is how far it goes in reversing Roe and Wade. The Mississippi law pushed abortion, pushed the the illegality time for abortion further back than it had been, but it still left windows open. Uh, And there was a sense that, I think from some legal uh, um, observers that I've read, that um, they might accept that law, but leave in place uh, a federal decision or a federal part of their law, legal framework that says you have to allow women an abortion up to a certain point. And there's there's different points that talk about viability of the fetus or certain developmental markers of the embryo where, where, where the court would say beyond that point, the states can regulate and legislate um, abortion rights away. But before that point, they can't. What this draft decision does, though, is open the question up fully. It would take it would reverse Roe and Wade fully, which would allow states to to, to legislate away at any point. So at any point in the embryo's development and leave open, frankly, the ability to legislate away something like the morning after pill. Uh, so so it goes, it, there's an inevitability, you're right. I think we've all been expecting that when, when they granted leave to this case, you knew that abortion rights were going to get scaled back. You knew it from the appointments that were happening and from the tilt of the court. Th- these jurists really made the ones that have been appointed have made no bones about the fact that they didn't like Roe and Wade, no matter what they pretended during their Senate, during the Senate confirmation hearings or what they told senators in private. We all knew who they were. But this decision goes a lot further, I think, than, than legal observers expected them to do. It goes all the way instead of just being sort of the first broad swipe at it. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, even uh, Senator Collins, a Republican, of course, uh, from Maine, uh, was surprised because she said, you know, I was at those Senate confirmation hearings for at least two of them, uh, for Gorsuch and for Kavanaugh, and they both said that they were going to be supportive of, of Roe versus Wade. And, of course, they've changed their minds now. They have a lifetime appointment, uh, which is, again, drawing into the politics of that. But, again, politics is, is certainly going to be part of this. So, basically, then, if if this decision comes down as as we understand it will be coming down, Andrew, that basically gives the states to, because as you rightly say, they've been chipping away at this at the state level as much as they can uh, to try to put in whatever restrictions, some of the more conservative-leaning uh, uh, governments in, in some of those states. But it's it's basically a free, they can do what they want. I mean, I've heard rumors that, as you say, uh, they could ban the the morning after pill. They could also ban people from going across the state line to another place to try to get an abortion. I mean, this can be very, very restrictive because basically they've got a, a, a clean slate here now if this goes through. Yeah, and a lot of these states already have these books uh, passed and 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 on on a governor's desk waiting for a signature. The minute that this decision comes down, they're not going to waste any time. A number of these states 
a number of the, the, the red conservative leaning states um, are going to do this very quickly. And, and I think a lot of people um, north of the border need to, and south of the border, frankly, but a lot of your listeners, I think, need to be prepared for how quickly this is going to go. Um, if this is an issue that they feel strongly about, you're going to see some very, very strong, severe restrictions come about. And, and the difference between one of the differences, and I know you want to talk about the differences between Canada and America. Mm -hmm. One of the serious differences between the two, it's a fundamental difference between the two, is that Canada has one criminal law from coast to coast. We don't have 10 criminal laws for 10 provinces or 13 if you include the territories. There's one criminal law. In the United States, there are 50 criminal laws. Each state has a penal code. And it's a criminal law. It's it's in those penal codes that the rubber really ultimately hits the road. There will be criminalization for people. There may be some states that try to do it under a regulatory framework to you know like to fine people. But a lot of these states are going to make it illegal for doctors to provide safe abortions. They are going to criminalize women who are trying to get abortions. And and I know that. Um, or, or who would like to get one or who attempt to get one. And I know that there are some conservative aspects of the states that say, you know, we can criminalize the abortion providers, but not the women. I don't believe that they're going to stop there. there. There's nothing about this that makes me actually believe that they won't criminalize women um, who try to get abortions as well. I think you're going to see that in some states. And it's going to just be another divisive point between the states between areas of, the, of that country uh, where women face vastly different life choices and, and abilities to, to exercise their choices. And it's, it's just going to be another flashpoint of division for them. We got a little bit of that, I guess, didn't we, Andrea, last uh, year during the, the election down in the States uh, because of all the kerfuffle and, you know, Trump still, I guess, to this day is saying he didn't lose the election. But the states, the individual states, even though it's a federal election, the individual states have their own sets of rules for this. And it's the same thing, I guess, with criminal law, too. So, it, it's you know, they call themselves the United States, but it's really it's 50 different jurisdictions that are held together, I guess, by their constitution. But there's a lot of state rights there that provinces in this country don't have. That makes a big difference, I would think. It does. And in fact, I mean, a small history lesson, that was a major thing for our framers of the Constitution in 1867 because our Constitution was, was drafted in the shadow of the American Civil War. And the slavery issue, where the rubber hit the road on slavery was in criminal law. It was in, it was in criminal sanctions for fugitive slaves, for people trying to assist fugitive slaves, there were it, it was in those those penal codes of each state where slavery was truly enforced at its base level. You can talk about convention and, and, and all you want, but it was it was the fact that criminal sanctions could attend to people who tried to help slaves um, that was a major force in keeping slavery intact before the Civil War. And and the Canadian framers saw those those divisions and said. One of the things we need to to unite this country is have a criminal law that is uniform across the country. And that's remained to this day. And, you know, there, there are clear regional concerns in Canada and regional divisions. And, and, and that's true in every country. But one thing that is not a division here is what is a crime. That very basic idea of what is illegal 
is standard across the country. And, and it's, it would be folly to underestimate how important that is. And you just need to look south now to, to get a sense of how important that is. All right, let's do, I got a couple of minutes left here, and I, you, you touched on this earlier, but I, I want to get a, a, a clarification on this. Because the question a lot of people, as, as you know, Andrew, are asking here is, can it happen in Canada? Uh, could they strike down uh, the, the abortion rules in this country? And as I understand it, I guess Parliament has that ability. I, I guess they can do whatever they want. But there's also the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is involved in this, which I would think has to come into play here. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, none of us have a crystal ball. And, and I, I think a lot of, uh, especially women in this country, are going to be very concerned right now that something like this could happen here. I, th- I would only say that it would be more difficult for it to happen here for, for a number of reasons. Um, one is the, the charter made clear in the Morgenthaler case that it, it, a government cannot restrict abortion fully. Now, now the court left open the ability for parliament to re- to legislate away things like late-term abortions. But no, no parliament has done that, including a conservative parliament that had a majority government for five years, yeah. uh, 10 years ago. They, they didn't want to touch it. And, and so it, there's just been no appetite for it, number one. It would have to happen at the criminal law level in parliament federally, number two, in terms of whether an abortion is illegal. And the, the, the second point here is courts have been very, very strong in forcing provincial governments to ensure access to abortions. Now, th- there's a problem in this country with women being able to access abortions across the country. There are a lot of uh, women in provinces across the country that don't have access. It's the provinces that have to create the regulations that allow for safe abortions and, and access to abortions. And a lot of women across the country just don't have that. The, the clinics are too far away. Um, there was there have been provinces where they just didn't have really any clinics except maybe one. Um, and a lot of women in rural areas couldn't go and access that. And generally speaking, the, the, the way that those have been challenged is by lawsuits against the government. And courts have generally been very strong in upholding the, the right to choice and enforcing governments too as part of their mandate to provide health care for their for their people, forcing them to to remedy those problems with access. It's certainly not ideal. There are still a lot of women across this country who ha- have trouble being able to access safe abortions. But when those issues have come up, there's a very, very strong track record in this country uh, of courts siding with the claimants and forcing the governments to remedy their issues. Uh, New Brunswick, I know, is one of those. I think there are only three hospitals in the entire province that uh, that are allowed to uh, uh, to offer uh, abortion. So that that makes it problematic, obviously, for the rest of the people in different areas there. So, uh, interesting debate. I, I know I know this is just the beginning of this issue, not the end of it, certainly. And uh, as I say, because we're getting so many speculative uh, opinions on this right now, it's so good of you to have some time for us today to add some clarity to this, Andrew. Thank you so much for this. My pleasure, Bill. Talk to you soon. You too. Take care now. Andrew Fugiali, of course, a lecturer from the uh, Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. New developments happening uh, with the uh, Ukraine-Russia war, uh, which some people still don't seem to understand that it is a war. But uh, the European Union is becoming more proactive on this, and they are actually meeting uh, today uh, and uh, have met a couple of times already last week, uh, proposing to 
I guess, to increase the number of sanctions and actually spread uh, the number of sanctions to targeting Russia uh, with what they've been doing in Ukraine. Inez de Cuerta has the details for us. EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. We will make sure that we phase out Russian oil in an orderly fashion, so in a way that allows us and our partners to secure alternative supply routes and at the same time be very careful that we minimize the impact on the global market. The EU has already moved to ban Russian coal. Some countries that are heavily dependent on Russian oil, like Hungary and Slovakia, are opposed to an oil embargo, which would go into effect by the end of the year. Inez de Lequitera, ABC News, Paris. And as, uh, and as mentioned in her report there, uh, this is not being warmly received by a lot of members in the European nations. And uh, so it's going to be rather tricky to stick handle around this. So what are the implications and where is this eventually going? Uh, to talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Professor Oral Brown, who is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Muck School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, uh, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you. So many different things I want to talk about here, including some rumors that, that uh, I think are uh, worthy of some discussion here, too. But let's talk about the uh, economic sanctions right now. Uh, as you've mentioned, since the beginning now, when both NATO and, of course, the European Union uh, decided to impose sanctions on Russia, the concern has always been essentially about energy and fuel, because a number of countries are still reliant on Russia for uh, the, the, the supply of those sorts of things. How effective can this be if you've got some people within the nations, including Germany, frankly, and, and other nations that are saying, look, at, you know, we, we don't want to really slam the door on this because, uh, you know, we, we need that stuff, too. And it's actually, as I think you mentioned to us a week or so ago, Russian uh, energy, Russian oil is cheaper than it is on the world market right now. So this is this is a bargain that some of these nations may not be very comfortable giving up on. It is a, a difficult choice. The problem is how uh, we and uh, the Europeans got here. It's not that there had not been warning signs that dependence on Russian energy was dangerous. Uh, there were many who have cautioned the Europeans that Russia will use energy levers for political purposes. This ought not to shock anyone, and the Russians have. So now we're in a situation where uh, several countries in the EU are indeed very heavily dependent on uh, Russian energy, despite all the warnings. So to wean them, uh, wean them off is going to be difficult. Germany now has come more or less on side, but a couple of smaller countries, such as Hungary and Slovakia, are very highly dependent. In the case of Hungary, the leader has closed ties with Vladimir Putin. They are re uh, reluctant to go along, so uh, there may be a need to provide some kind of exemption to these two small uh, consumers. And uh, perhaps that is how the EU is going to proceed because you need consensus for a decision. And by allowing these countries to phase out oil, not by the end of this year or six months, but uh, let's say by the end of 2023, might do it. But as long as the Germans and the Italians stop their imports, because they uh, are the heavy users, this will be a very, very big blow to the Russian economy. To give you an idea, the imports of uh, uh, fossil fuels has gone up since the war started. The imports per month have amounted to something like $23 billion. Before the war, imports were only $12.5 billion. Part of it has been the huge price increase. And so this has got to stop. If the sanctions are to be meaningful, the West has to pay uh, 
a certain price for it. Uh, sanctions are not cost free. And they will also have to stop the shipping of this oil by European companies. How much leeway is there for negotiations? I mean, within the EU, Professor, for this to happen? As you say, there's some reticence on, uh, on the part of some of these nations to even get involved in this. Uh, and as you, and Italy and, and Germany could be, I guess, you know, they're, they're, they may be unwilling, but they're going to go along with it, as, as you mentioned. Uh, but can they go back to the EU and say, look, you got to help us compensate for this loss here? Or, or is it they just have to, to bear the brunt of this, uh, maybe even more so than some of the other nations? The EU has a means of sharing energy, and they have pipelines and and, uh, and other ways, uh, tanker deliveries, uh, where they can share. Uh, obviously, tankers will not be used in the case of landlocked countries, but it, it is something that uh, has to be done collectively. And uh, the smaller countries, even though they uh, may not have large economies, they can block decisions. So uh, Ursula von der Leyen has her uh, job cut out. She has been very strong on this. She has spoken out uh, uh, against importing these uh, fossil fuels from uh, Russia. She had visited Ukraine. She understands fully what is at stake, that these sanctions have to be meaningful and that they have to have an impact and they have to have an impact as soon as possible on the Russian economy, because even though in Russia, the government controls television, and that is the main source for news for people, and the population is very highly manipulated, the security services and the military do understand that on the ground, Russia has suffered grievous losses, and they do uh, know that economically, Russia is being hurt. So this has to be pressed home. Let's let's talk about what's going to be happening. I mean, there was a report earlier this week that suggested that uh, the the next level of the Russian strategy here may well be uh, to what they call enacting well false plebiscites in in some of the eastern regions of Ukraine uh, that are going to show that uh, they want Russia to take them over and and to govern them once again, and that, that's easily manipulated. Of course, we've seen that happen uh, with the Russians in other situations. You know, they, and and Putin said that right from the beginning. Uh, that this was an emancipation for, for Ukraine. Uh, it was not a, a, a takeover. Are people going to buy that? I guess that's going to sell pretty well in, in Russia. I mean, they, they seem to be buying into Putin's message there. But but how would, for instance, Ukraine and Zelensky, and for that matter, the EU, uh, respond to something like this, uh, they, which, which would basically be a, a sham, but nonetheless, uh, some sense of justification, I guess, for Putin's actions? The Russians did it in Crimea. They had... Yeah. Uh, this referendum, and they claimed that it was the decision of the people of Crimea, but this was not accepted elsewhere uh, in much of the world, certainly not in the democratic world. Democracies know that ballots and bullets do not go together, and that you cannot have any kind of meaningful election uh, in coercive circumstances. But this does not mean that Russians will not try, and they may indeed uh, proceed uh, along those lines, they have to organize this because they have to make sure that they actually get uh, those uh, those votes and uh, they will bring in collaborators in these regions and you can always find collaborators uh, in any kind of conflict. We know this from the Second World War, whether it was in France or whether it was uh, in uh, Norway. Quisling uh, has become a term of uh, for betrayal and uh, this was the leader of, of Norway who collaborated with the Nazis. So that may indeed be part of the Russian plan. At this moment, 
Vladimir Putin wants to create the impression of some kind of win. He has clearly miscalculated in terms of a strategic uh, kind of uh, move to secure uh, larger goals. So he is trying to salvage whatever he can because he understands that if he is losing, and most importantly, if he is seen to be losing, that could lead to a loss of power. There's no forgiveness in Russia for losing a war. That is the history in Russia, that uh, governments that lost wars in the history of Russia did not end up well. Well, let's talk about the implications of that and, and the th- fact that it's not going well. I'm sure you've seen this reporting uh, over the last 24 hours or so that's suggesting that uh, Putin is concerned and with some justification about a coup to basically remove him from office. Uh, the, the stories are, the rumors are swirling uh, that a number of former generals and KGB officials, uh, where of course Putin was once uh, the head of, are now preparing uh, to oust uh, Putin and plan to end the war in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, I guess based on this, and uh, you know, two of the... Uh, the Russian security force now is called the FSB. Uh, two of the senior officers there, I guess, are under house arrest, which indicates that maybe there was uh, some plotting that is going on. Do you see that as something that, that may well be happening there? It's difficult to know because there could be a great deal of disinformation uh, that we're getting. It could even be something that is part of information warfare uh, by the West, but the British intelligence services planting some of uh, these uh, rumors. In general, when there's a coup, you know it when it has happened. It's not signaled way before. So this is why uh, I think we need to exercise some skepticism as to the contours of exactly uh, what is happening. But clearly, there must be dissatisfaction among those people, the security services and the military, who know the real figures, who understand just how badly... Uh, Vladimir Putin has miscalculated. This is a personalist regime. All the key decisions are made by Vladimir Putin. So in the past, he would get the glory. He would get uh, the public adulation. But if you claim credit for everything, you also eventually wind up being blamed for every failure. And uh, even though it's premature to say that Russia has failed entirely because they still have a lot of military resources and they are continuing to bomb all over Ukraine. As you know, they uh, bombed power stations, substations, uh, as far as uh, uh, Lviv in, um, in, in Ukraine. So uh, the Russian military power is still vast and is still far greater than that of Ukraine. It is beginning to shift because finally the West is now sending Ukraine the kind of armaments that they've been pleading for, but it has been a relatively slow process. So Russia can inflict still a huge amount of damage. Uh, Now it may be the case that uh, uh, Russia might finally be able to take control of of the Azovstal steel plant. Uh, Communication has been lost to the last defenders uh, of that. And then if Russia controls Mariupol entirely, that could be presented as a significant victory, certainly for May 9th. So there are so many things we don't know. But if we stand back, it's a, it is not inconceivable that there is a tremendous amount of dissatisfaction, that if Western pressure is kept up, if Russian losses keep accumulating, uh, Mr. Putin might be removed. And, and I guess history 
indicates that there's some feasibility to this too, doesn't it, Professor? I mean, I mean, really, I guess it was since well, well, World War II, I guess, in the Stalin days, uh, changes of leadership in Russia don't happen at the ballot box. I mean, you either die or you're you're, you're overthrown. I mean, that happened, you know, with Yeltsin. It happened with Kashyyyk and, and Brezhnev, and and uh, certainly it, it, it's feasible, I guess, that there could be something going on here because, as you say, uh, the security agencies know the real story and they know uh, the losses and the impact this is having on on the government and on, and frankly, on the, I guess, the economy of Russia. Vladimir Putin has gone so far in, in destroying the fiber of any kind of democratic process of uh, what remained of democratic institutions and has uh, so completely concentrated power in his own hands. He has been so brutal towards opponents. Look at the attempted poisoning of Navalny, Navalny, Alexei Navalny, and subsequent jailing, that uh, he has made it virtually impossible to have a peaceful transition, Uh, that either he dies in office uh, and uh, the way it stands right now with the constitutional change that he forced, he could stay in office theoretically until the age of 83 or uh, to 2036, uh, or he is removed. And given that he has made so many enemies, uh, uh, that removal would not likely be peaceful. And again, your historical perspective, I think, is bang on here, too. I mean, you know, there was an attempt on Hitler's life during World War II when the war started to turn in, in the favor of the Allies that only failed because of the, the bomb went off, didn't have much of an impact on him. He was only slightly injured in this. But people paid a price for that. Uh, and you got to figure the guy that used to head the KGB would, would be sniffing around to find out just who's on his side and, and, and who may be involved in something like this. But it's I know it's, it's kind of insider information, but it, it's interesting to see that those stories are starting to, to, to surface at this stage. Where would they come from, though? I mean, are, are there leaks within the Kremlin, Professor? Or is, is this just, uh, you know, as you mentioned, there are security agencies and spy agencies uh, in the UK, the Five Eyes and others like this that are constantly monitoring what's going on there. Uh, when a story like this leaks, is it because they're seeing indications that this may be happening? We, we just don't know. I mean, one of the leaks comes from City AM, and that's uh, a tabloid paper distributed free and has links to the Conservative Party. And Boris Johnson has uh, been very strong on uh, standing up to Russia. And he has suggested an actual strategy, which is that Vladimir Putin must lose in this uh, invasion and he must be seen to be losing, which essentially uh, goes to the removal of uh, Vladimir Putin. So uh, it's not inconceivable that British intelligence services have circulated this Uh, this rumor. Um, Within Russia itself, there are rivalries, uh, even between the military and the security services. There's not a a great deal of of, uh, warmth between those two services. And in the case of failure, um, they would tend to blame blame each other. Uh, But um, I, I, I don't think they would be putting out these rumors unless a coup was actually on the way and they, they moved, because it would be just, just too dangerous. Um, Putin had been very successful in gathering around himself a group of very strong loyalists who will carry out his orders. He has not hesitated to uh, have any opposition crushed. He has gone uh, over not only uh, against not only political opponents, but he has closed down civil society organizations. Uh, he has closed down institutions and organizations 
that dealt with uh, historical memory, that looked at the abuses of uh, of Stalin. Those have been shut down as well. So he has been very, very thorough, and we should not uh, underestimate uh, Putin's ability to survive. But uh, no one uh, has perfect control. Sometimes even uh, the toughest, most capable, most brutal dictators slip up. And so it is the nature of dictatorships that they look very strong and stable until all of a sudden they are no longer strong and stable. Yeah, we've heard those stories, of course. In any video we've seen of Putin, uh, he is literally surrounded uh, by what he calls his bodyguards. And I, I, I was told the vetting process for that is is extreme. He wants to make sure they are the loyalist, uh, uh, I guess, of his supporters. But as you say, I mean, you don't know where this is going to come from. And I, I, the reason I'm skeptical about it, and that's why I'm glad I was able to talk to you about this today, Professor, is like you say, a, a coup you usually don't find out about until it actually has happened or attempted to happen anyway. And if, in fact, there are stories out about this, if we're talking about it, Putin's certainly aware of it and probably knows uh, who the potential perpetrators may be. So I, I'm not so sure that this, this is on the level. Well, this is a man who's so careful or paranoid that foreign leaders, uh, if they didn't want to sit at a table that was uh, 20 feet uh, long, they had to uh, basically uh, undergo a Russian uh, PCR test, which meant... Uh, uh, giving you DNA to the secret uh, secret services, and uh, during the height of COVID, uh, uh, even those who were close to Vladimir Putin had to go through this disinfectant tunnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were these uh, extreme measures that were taken to protect Vladimir Putin uh, uh, from people and from germs. We shall see uh, what happens in the days to come on this. Uh, Professor, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for this today. Thank you for having me on. Take care. Professor Oral Brown, of course, from uh, University of Toronto, uh, with his uh, take on what's happening in Ukraine and, frankly, in, in Moscow these days as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, it won't be too long now. As a matter of fact, I've already seen a few crews out. Uh, the, the signs will be up on the front lawns. The writ has been dropped, and uh, the election is underway. June 2nd, of course, is voting day here in the province of Ontario. And uh, our friends at at Ipsos have, uh, well, as always, uh, have their finger on the pulse of where we are, what we're thinking, and uh, which way we're leaning when it comes to uh, who we're going to elect on June 2nd. Uh, Sean Simpson is the uh, vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs. Joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about uh, the latest numbers. Sean, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us. My pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about this right now. I think the, the, the headline that I guess is not going to shock a whole lot of people, it looks like from your research anyway that uh, that this is uh, Doug Ford's uh, election to, to lose. I mean, he's got a pretty comfortable lead right now. Yeah, he does. Uh, last month we saw the race tightening, but it sort of snapped back to where it was uh, a couple of months ago uh, with the progressive conservatives at 39% of the popular vote. That's up four points from last month. Uh, while the Liberals are slipping, they're down to 26% and have the NDP at 25 nipping at their heels. Yeah, I was surprised by the numbers last month as well, that it was going to be as close as it was. But as we've talked about in the past, you know, a, a day is a lifetime in politics, and, and certainly the landscape has changed here significantly. When you talk about, as you say, if the election were held today, probably around 39% for the PCs, is, is that majority government? Are they, are they in the neighborhood there? Well, it certainly would be close. Uh, we have to remember that last election they got, I believe it was 41%. So that would be a decline yeah. of, of two points. So it's all about where where that decline is located. In the 2018 election, there were roughly 15 ridings 
that had a margin of victory of about a thousand votes or less. Half of those were held by uh, are now held by conservative uh, MPPs. So if you know that that two uh, percent swing I'm talking about uh, occurs in those ridings as well, you know that they, they they start from a position of losing seats uh, rather than gaining them. Now they would still have a, a, a slim majority if that were the case. But if if their support declines much further below thirty nine percent, they could be in trouble. But what's working in their favor? is that the progressive vote between the Liberals and the NDP is perfectly split. And with all of that vote splitting happening, that should deliver even more seats to the Tories. Let's talk about the 905 area, uh, which is the motherload for votes. I mean, let's face it, I mean, uh, that may you know cause some resentment in other parts of the province. But uh, as, as your in, uh, research has always indicated, elections can be won and lost in that one area. Absolutely. There are, I think it's almost 30% of of Ontarians live in that 905 uh, region. And so it's important to note uh, that presently the Tories have a 21-point lead over the Liberals. I mean, that would be uh, pretty well a washout for for the Liberals in the 905 and and would certainly... put the, the Conservatives, the Progressive Conservatives, in, in good standing to renew their majority government. But the Tories lead in almost every region. The only two where they don't is in the, is in the 416 Toronto proper, but they're only four points behind the Liberals there, and in northern Ontario where the NDP has a traditional uh, but, but narrow advantage. Yeah, it, it's, it's funny how those lines have been drawn right now. I wasn't at all surprised when I saw the NDP at 37 in northern Ontario and the, and the PCs at 34. That, that's pretty much the way it's been for, uh, gosh, generations now, hasn't it? Yeah, the, the the NDP tends to do well uh, in places like Hamilton, places like Windsor, uh, and then uh, and then in the north. But I think what's what's fundamentally informing these strong figures for the for the Tories is uh, that roughly half of Ontarians continue to approve of the performance of the premier, and forty percent believe he deserves re-election. Well, if you believe he deserves re-election, you're likely to vote for him. And so uh, last month, those figures, the, the vote figures, and the proportion who believe he deserves re-election were out of step. And that was kind of weird. It normally doesn't happen. This month, we now see them in, in lockstep. 40% believe he deserves re-election. 39% is the proportion of the popular vote that, uh, that the Tories are currently receiving. Uh, just to connect the dots here, though, you know, as you say, the, the change in, in, in percentages here from last month to this month, the Premier's been a pretty busy guy. Um, you know, he's been at the podium uh, with the Prime Minister, as a matter of fact, making an awful lot of announcements, investing an awful lot of money, especially toward the auto industry. Plus the fact that, you know, we can't be naive. COVID has not left us, but it's it's certainly, I don't think, the, the threat that it was, say, a year or so ago. And as we kind of anticipated, uh, didn't we, Sean, that as, as, as the pandemic started to get better for us and, and you know, when we get closer to this and the auto industry now has, a, has had a large infusion of cash, that, that usually puts a government in pretty good light, doesn't it? Yeah, if there's been a lot of, uh, let's say, good news uh, coming from the Tory camp. It started a couple of months ago when people started to receive their uh, their refund checks for license yeah. stickers. It may have rubbed some people the wrong way, but what it does is reinforce the message that if you're looking to save uh, some some money, Doug Ford's your guy. Um, we know from our, our polling from just a couple of weeks ago that pocketbook issues are the dominant issues of the campaign. And on most of those, the Tories are, are ahead of the Liberals and the NDP on, on that save, save housing where people are skeptical that any party can actually fix the, mm-hmm. the affordability crisis that we're, that we're seeing here. But, you know, everything points to, uh, advantage, uh, Tories. You know, Eric Sorensen had a, had a great, uh, piece on the news last night talking about the yeah. fact that 
when the Liberals are in power federally, the, the, the Tories are in power provincially. Uh, it's only bucked the trend, I think, once in the last hundred years. So the inertia, the momentum is definitely on the side of the Tories and against the Liberals and the NDP here. Yeah, that's kind of a quirky thing that we have here in Ontario, especially, isn't it? Uh, we like to see that. I don't know if it's a, a check and balance uh, scenario or whatever it is, but we seem more, much more comfortable if there's, as you say, a, a federal liberal government. We, we kind of want to see the Tories here and, and vice versa, and and, uh, and that bodes well. Uh, plus the fact that, uh, as we've seen, I just talked about the, you know, the number of uh, times that uh, the Premier's been making announcements. Uh, he's playing nice with the Prime Minister right now, too, and uh, which I guess is really good politics, because uh, it wasn't that long ago we had a federal election, and, and let's face it, the Liberals did pretty well in Ontario, uh, and Ford needs to attract some of those people to his side. Yeah, that's right. He, he's, he's trying to present himself as somebody who can, who can get along with other people, who has the right temperament to be uh, Prime Minister and can work effectively with, with, the, with the federal parties. You know, the other thing that, that, that really points to a, a Tory victory here is that the progressive conservatives have never, uh, in, in modern history anyway, have never been a one-term government. They've always won uh, successive mandates. And so if, if they were to lose this election, that would be quite historic uh, because it would be the first time that they only had one, one term in office before being defeated. Interesting statistics on that. Uh, the other thing, too, here that, that I was looking for in these numbers, and, and they certainly, uh, I think, bear out what we were anticipating was going to happen, uh, was some separation uh, between uh, you know the Liberals and, and the, especially the PCs, especially in the 905 area. And, and that's not a reflection on Del Duca, but the fact is he is a, a new leader and, and relatively unknown. And, and I, we have a propensity, I guess, when it comes to elections to kind of stick with people that we know anyway, don't we? I mean, the, with a track record, and, and uh, we kind of know what to expect. Yeah, particularly during times of, of, of crisis. You know, it's quite unprecedented right now in Canada. We're dealing with any number of, of things, and it's not unique to Canada. It's around the world as well. We've got, you know, the, the, we've got COVID. We've got uh, inflation. We've got uh, rising interest rates. Uh, there's the Ukrainian situation. We just went through trucker protests that were predominantly in Ontario. There's a lot of things going on, and I think Canadians and Ontarians in particular are sort of sticking with the devil they know. Del Duca is, is, is new, uh, a relatively new leader of uh, for the party. Many don't know who he is. And he's starting from a position of disadvantage. Remember that the Liberals only got about 20% of the popular vote last time out. It would it would be quite uh, quite a feat to go from 20% to, you know, mid-30s that they would need at least to form a minority government. Yeah, I, I, in the press release here, it says that, you know, the the, the Liberals are, are still ahead of the popular vote uh, in of 2018. That's uh, a pretty low bar to set there, I mean, because they, they were decimated yeah. in that election, weren't they? Yeah, we're going to see a lot of new faces uh, at Queen's Park uh, this year. Not Tory faces necessarily, but I think there will be some departing members of the NDP caucus and some newly minted members of the, of the Liberal caucus. Again, just inertia. I don't, I don't think that the Liberals will be down and out in, in the 20% range for very long, and they're definitely looking to uh, to Im- improve their standing at the at the expense of the uh, of the NDP. The, the, the trouble is right now is that the, the first part of this election campaign is really going to be sort of a primary for the progressive vote. Progressive voters, those voting Liberal NDP, need to figure out who has the best chance of defeating the Ford government and then start to coalesce around that leader. Uh, If they don't do that, they will split the vote and the Tories will almost certainly be guaranteed a, a majority government. We hear this every election, though, don't we, Sean? You know, strategic voting, you know, vote for who you think can knock off. If you don't like Doug Ford, you know, is that going to happen? But does it actually work out that way? Or do it, when push comes to shove, we just decide who 
the best person is for our particular thing. We don't worry about the politics of it. Yeah, our exit day polls, election day polls that we've done in the past suggest that roughly two in 10 voters tend to vote strategically. Now, it doesn't necessarily Uh mean that they're always doing it right, because in order to do it correctly, you need to understand the local dynamics within your riding, who has the best chance of defeating who, et cetera, et cetera. So just a a blanket, well, I'm voting NDP to stop the Tories, or I'm voting Liberals to stop the Tories, or whatever your motivation is, um, it's more nuanced than that. But certainly we know that um, at the start of the campaign, you have less information than you do in the, in the closing days. Uh, and so I think the vote intent now reflects who people in an ideal situation would vote for. Now that they know what the situation is, they're going to be paying closer attention, we'll have more polling throughout the campaign, they'll be able to, uh, I think, understand what the dynamics are a little bit better, and we'll probably start to see a little bit more strategic voting as a result. Well, I look forward to our future conversations on this, because it's always fascinating to see just how people make up their minds, and it can be on some rather in- interesting twists and turns, uh, which is, you know, to use the sports cliche, that's why they play the game. That's why we, we have the campaign <laughs> before we actually go voting on this. As always, Sean, thank you so much for the great work you guys are doing at Ipsos, and uh, thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Sean Simpson is the VP of Ipsos Public Affairs. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.